Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning, please, and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Most of you are familiar with what takes place in this chapter of God's Word. I want to ask you, as we look here, what do you think would be the result of a group of, the, of people of God in our day at church? What do you think would happen to that church What would the results be for that church if they were to bring the world into what is supposed to be a biblical, spiritual body, a godly body? What would the results be? To see this and to understand this, all you have to do is to consider the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They were supposed to be the people of God. They were supposed to be the people of the Word, the people of the Scriptures. They were supposed to be those who followed after and longed after God's own heart. But I want you to look here in this chapter down to verse 47. As we find here what is taking place after, as you know, The resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. This mighty, powerful miracle. So, what does a spiritual body, a godly body of God's people think about something like that? Well, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So you see, they realized and they recognized that there were many signs being done by Jesus, culminating in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, but not just exclusively the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. They had seen many mighty signs by Jesus right there. Right in front of them. The Son of God performing many signs. You'd think that they would recognize that the Messiah had come. You'd think that they would get it. They admitted many mighty signs. But instead, verse 48, they were worried about their profit margin. They were worried about worldly things, following God for these scribes and Pharisees and so many in the Jewish religion at this time had become like a business, a ritual. Why do you think they were so upset when Jesus Jesus chased out the money changers and those who were selling at the temple? It was a business and he was bad for business. It had become a ritual, a way of life. God and the things of God were merely social. Social. But you know what? You don't have to go so far back to see this. You could look at the Church of Rome, both in history and even today. Because you look at the Church of Rome 
and you see what they do, and rather than taking the Scriptures alone, sola scriptura, rather than taking faith alone, rather than taking grace alone, they rely on man. They go by man's word, and they go by the traditions of the mother church rather than the Word of God. And so what happens? That church has brought the world in and the works of the world in, and it's given rise to salvation by works, by praying on beads and praying to and bowing to idols and statues, worldly things ungodly things, unclean things. And yes, they are a business. I believe they are still the largest landowners in all the world in terms of a corporation or a body other than a country. They own more land than anyone else. And somebody has to pay for that. And so it gave rise to what we know as indulgences. As they would come around and try to get you and to play upon your heart and to play upon your mind to give to the church to get your grandmother out of purgatory. And so when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And that sort of teaching gave rise to the Reformation. And to men who would stand up and say, enough! That's not in the Bible. But you know, it's not changed. Rome is Rome. And their so-called church is still a business. And they still need money to make it go. And that's the bottom line for many. It's tradition. It's social. It's a business. But once again, you don't need to go so far to find an example of what happens when worldliness is brought into the church. Because all you need to do is look at the average so-called evangelical Baptist church in our day. And I ask you, think about it. Do we not have churches today who have exchanged the truth of the Word of God the purity of the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God for the ways of the world. Churches today, whether churches at large or the church down the street, has brought the world and all its allurements and all its lightheartedness into the church. It's fun and games and a desire to make men feel comfortable and good that has taken over, taken over even evangelical churches in our day. They've brought the world into what should be a spiritual body They've brought the things of the world, the entertainment of the world, the allurement of the world. 
the jokes of the world into what should be a spiritual body. Do you know what is almost without exception the first thing to go when you bring the world into a church? The first thing usually to go is this. Truth, sound doctrine, expositional preaching. We don't want that because that ain't fun. And so what happens is the Word of God usually goes, sound theology usually goes, and a willingness to think goes. And in its place comes an unwillingness to be made to feel uncomfortable. Gosh, we don't want to feel uncomfortable. We don't want to be told that we're sinners. We don't want to be told that there's a hell or a judgment of God. And so those things in many evangelical churches, or at least churches that claim to be evangelical, many never talk about judgment. Seldom the wrath of God, if ever. And so seldom even sin. Or why men need to be saved. And as you know, this is what we've been studying in recent weeks. In our series entitled, The Beauty of Wrath. The very message of the gospel deals with the wrath of God and the seriousness of sin. And that God takes sin so seriously that He sent His Son to die for sin. His own beloved Son. And therefore, it is by nature, by the nature of the message of the gospel, that men should be made uncomfortable in their sin. But churches don't want to do that anymore. Churches don't want to make people uncomfortable. How then can men be saved in such churches? That's next week's message. But for this week, we pick up with an understanding of why it is. It is because of this very thing that worldliness has invaded the church that we began this study and began by seeing from the Word of God the reality of wrath. Yes, this Bible tells us that God will bring judgment upon sinners. Imagine that. That is the reality of wrath seen in the Scriptures. And we began by dealing with what we called the common conviction. The common conviction. Yes, believe it or not, it's out there. And even those churches I just mentioned, they talk about it. But they don't talk about what it is. Here's what I mean. They'll say that men need to be saved. But what they don't say is, Saved from what? What is salvation? We sing about it. We talk about it. We read about it. We pray about it. We ask God to save people, but save them from what? 
the wrath of God. That's what salvation is. Salvation is being saved from the wrath of God to come unto new life to Jesus. That's the common conviction in many churches. We then went on to see the chronicle of the concept throughout the Old Testament that it's taught easily and clearly in the Old Testament. And then we looked finally at the the Christian concept of the wrath of God and we focused predominantly on, believe it or not, the clear teaching of Jesus. People seem to skip over it like it isn't there. But Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, talked to men about the fires of hell and of judgment. I ask you to turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 7. This towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus has talked about the fires of hell and men being cast into hell, he says here in verse 7, and you look down to verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, not everyone goes to heaven. Where do the rest go? Where do the rest go? Yes. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many mighty miracles? I don't have time to go into all of this, but doesn't that sound like a lot of people who think they're saved? Who think they're religious? Who go maybe to some of those churches I've just mentioned who don't even mention judgment or hell or the wrath of God or sin or the need for holiness or the need for repentance. A lot of those churches are out there. A lot of people are going to those churches and they may be the ones who come before God and say, Lord, Lord, I went to church every Sunday. And what is Jesus going to say? And in your name I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. Remember that word lawlessness? But what Jesus says is depart from me. To where? To hell. The wrath of God. Not everyone who goes to church. Not everyone who says they're a Christian. Is going to go to heaven. The determining criteria is, do you know him in your heart? And as we have been seeing in other passages, do you know his word? Do you keep his word? Do you follow him? Don't tell me you made a decision 50 years ago or 10 years ago. Are you following Jesus today? That's the determining criteria. He says, even in verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire, so you will know them by their fruits. What are your fruits? Today. Today. And so Jesus taught very clearly that there is judgment and wrath to come. 
We also noted from Luke chapter 16, and you don't need to turn there, that Jesus gave that discussion about, and I don't want to call it a parable, I seem to believe that that really happened, of Lazarus and the rich man. We know that Lazarus went to be in the bosom of Abraham, the glory of God. But Jesus also spoke very bluntly and clearly about what happened to the rich man, that he woke up in hell, in agony, in torment. And there was no escape for him. And so it was too late for him to do anything about his condition. And it will be too late for anyone here who has not settled with God in this life. You kids, you listen to me. You never know how long you will live. You need to know you know Jesus now. Because when the rich man woke up, it was too late. We also went on from there to see the clear teaching of the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to ask that you turn with me at this time to Romans chapter 1. Remember, I'm not teaching you or showing you right now from the Scriptures some antiquated book in the Old Testament. Micah? Where's Micah? How about Nehemiah? Nehemiah? Where's Nehemiah? It's in there. But we're not talking about that. We're looking here at what Jesus has said. And here in the first epistle recorded in the Scriptures, at least in the order of the Scriptures, from the Apostle Paul, look what he says in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God. And he goes on in the next couple of chapters to talk about the sinfulness of sin and the wickedness of sin. The clear teaching of our Lord Jesus and the clear teaching even here of the Apostle Paul is that there is wrath of God and that there is judgment. Not popular to preach on. I hope you're uncomfortable. We went on from there to talk about and to see from the Scriptures and to consider the reason for the wrath of God. The reason for the wrath. And here's where I want to cover a little bit of some new material and to discuss some things that I had hoped to deal with in previous messages but wasn't able to get to them. Some of it you will recognize, but some of it is new. You remember that we saw that God's wrath manifests His glory. His wrath actually shows His glory as He deals with and moves and interacts with men and women and people and His people of Israel. But the fact of the matter is, His wrath is one of His attributes. And as with any other one of His attributes, His wrath shows that He is God. We speak of God as having attributes that are His alone. Attributes that, it, 
that show that he is God. Now, there are what we call communicable attributes of God, which all of us created in his image have. We have knowledge. We have wisdom. We have the ability to love and to read and to communicate and to understand. All of those are communicable attributes. But there are some attributes that when you speak about them, describe God and God alone, such as complete, pure holiness. That is God alone. Only God is completely holy. Only God is completely pure. Only God is completely sinless. His attribute of holiness is who He is. We speak about His omnipotence. He is all-powerful, almighty. I think the uh, people in Washington think that they're omnipotent. But I got news for them, they're not! Only God is truly omnipotent and all-powerful. He alone is the God of creation. He alone is the God who can move heaven and earth to provide for and to care for His people. He alone is omnipotent. He alone is omniscient. He knows all things. He is everywhere and knows all things. These are attributes of God. And one of the attributes of God is He is a God of complete justice. He is a just God. He does everything right. He never does anything wrong. And because He is a God of complete justice, He must punish sin and unrighteousness. And that is his wrath. And A.W. Pink points to the wrath of God as being one of his attributes. And this is what we saw from the scriptures. But he is holy. He is completely pure. And he is completely just and completely good. Therefore... His wrath is part of who He is as God, a God of justice, and therefore His wrath is not contrary to His nature as God. If you're in Romans, look at chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And this is that passage that we read a little while ago. And I can only take the time right now to have you look at verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It is the righteous judgment of God. His judgments are always perfect. His judgments are always righteous. The God of the Bible never does anything wrong. And He never does anything capriciously. Kids, you know what the word capriciously means? It means arbitrary. Like on a whim. I I do things on a whim sometimes. 
We might be driving down the road and say, hey, let's stop in here. You do things on a whim, capriciously, arbitrarily. God's judgments are not arbitrary. They are based upon His Word. They are based upon what He has given us in His Word. And when you break His Word, when you go against His Word, when you go contrary to His Word, we call that sin. Sin. And if you look at 1 John 3, 4, you read that sin is lawlessness. It is a breaking of the law of God. That's what sin is. A breaking of the law of God. So, when you break the law of God, God must act because He is 100% completely just. His justice is righteous, but it is always perfect. Always there always going to take place. He must punish those who sin against him and break his law. That means that God's wrath is not an option. His wrath is not an option. He must pour out his wrath upon sin. He must. For God to treat all men alike, the righteous and the unrighteous, and treat them in the same way, that would be injustice. That would be a sin. For God to treat the righteous and the unrighteous in the same way would be sinful, and therefore God would not be perfect. He would not be perfectly holy, and therefore His wrath is not an option. He must pour out his wrath upon sin. If he were not to do that, it would mean there would be no justice for the wicked. Now, if you would look back to chapter 1 here, and not quite as far back as before, but Romans chapter 1, look down to verse 21, and think about this. Verse 21, For even though they knew God, They did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and look what they did. They exchanged the glory of God, glory of the incorruptible God, for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed animals, and crawly creatures. Remember we mentioned at the beginning how some bow before statues. Professing to be wise, they are fools. Praying to Mary, praying to Joseph, praying to whatever saint to help them. They are foolish. And some worship the moon. You know who the moon god worshipers are? You ever see that half-crescent moon? They worship the moon. They worship false gods. And they have idols. And all of these idols are who they bow down to and give glory to. And God says in Isaiah, I will not give my glory to another. And therefore, he must come with wrath. 
upon those who give glory to idols or to false gods. He must. It is not an option. Because he says he will not give his glory to another. He cannot just let them go and treat them the same as the righteous. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over to their lusts, or in their lusts, of their hearts, to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged, look, look, look at this, don't miss this, the truth of God for a lie. Remember what we looked at last week from the Scriptures, from John chapter 8? We might get there today, I don't know. But it is truth that sets men free, truth. And look what he says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Who is blessed forever? The creature, the statue, the idol? No, only God. And so that gives rise to what comes next in the following verses in chapter 2, 1 rather, and verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to depraved mind, a depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, <gasps> without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they know it. They not only do the same but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Thus, chapter 2, therefore, you are without excuse. And then he goes down to say, because of this, you are storing up wrath in verse 5. And he will bring upon you righteous judgment because of your sin, because you glorify another other than God. Because you do not fall before God as God and understand and know that He is truly God and give Him and Him alone glory. Because you do not do that. You are going to be found wanting in the day of judgment and you will incur the wrath of God. But it is righteous judgment. Why is it righteous judgment? It's not harsh. It's not harsh. It's righteous because it's deserved. You earned it. That's what he's talking about. You earned it. You've stored it up for the day of wrath. So don't look at his wrath as being harsh. It's earned. You know, men always want to see, oh, they always talk about the punishment of God and the wrath of God like this. They say, why would a loving God ever do that? Why would a loving God 
ever take away my son or whatever it may be, as tragic as that is. They never look at it from God's view. Why would a loving God ever do this to me? Why have you, every day of your life, taken the name of the Lord in vain? Why have you, every day of your life, cursed God? Why have you, every day of your life, disobeyed God? Why have you, every day of your life, dishonored God by your filthiness and your dirtiness and your sin? Why do you ignore the worship of God and the Lord's day? They never see it that way. And yet that's the way it is. That's the truth. Men have earned the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death. They've earned it. They've earned it. And so His wrath is not harsh. His wrath is earned. Why don't we see that we are sinners before a holy God. And every single one of you that is here today who has been saved by the grace of God knows exactly what I am talking about. That there comes a time in your life or there came a time in your life when you recognized and realized that I am but an unworthy sinner There's nothing within me that is any good. There's nothing within me that can save me. I am unworthy. I am a sinner. I deserve the hell God has prepared for me. That's what David said when he came to understand his sin before God with Bathsheba in Psalm 51. He goes, oh, I have sinned against thee. Against thee only I have sinned and done what is unrighteous. I was a sinner from my mother's womb, and I am unworthy. If you don't have never come to see yourself that way, then you've never been saved. If you don't recognize the holiness of God, the purity of God, the righteousness of God, and yourself as being an unworthy sinner, then you don't know what salvation is yet. A little bit more about that. Because not only is His wrath not optional, not only is His wrath not harsh, but His wrath is not something that people should be ashamed of. People in churches today act as though they are ashamed of the wrath of God. Some speak of His wrath as though this were the dark side of God. The bad side of God. They speak of Him as having a positive side, a good side, and then a bad side. The good side would be His love and His provision and His kindness. The bad side of God would be His wrath. And we don't want to talk about the bad side of God. They act as though they're ashamed of His wrath. That it's negative. And they have to cover for Him. See, we we know that it's in the Bible. Because we read it. But we don't want to tell anyone. We don't want anybody to know. 
We certainly don't want to preach on it. We don't want to proclaim it from the pulpits. You know, gosh, if only there weren't that wrath stuff in the Bible, we'd have a big church. Everything would be great. And if only our pastor didn't keep preaching on it. The fact of the matter is, as we have seen, all that God does is righteous. All that He does is perfect. All that He does is good, including His wrath. And we do not have to apologize for His wrath, and we don't have to try to cover up for the fact of it. As He is holy, His wrath is holy. And you know, when you look at what God does among men, His wrath is not something that people are ashamed about or ashamed of when it benefits them. And that's what we saw in the Scriptures. When the people of Israel had their backs up against the Red Sea and God parted the sea and opened the sea after having destroyed so many of the Egyptians, He parts the sea, He opens the sea, they go through the sea, and then the army of Pharaoh goes through the sea, and the sea covers up and kills all of them. They weren't going, Oh God, why did you bring your wrath on them? They were going, praise God for his deliverance. Praise God for his might and his power and all that he has done for Israel. Amen. Praise God. They sang songs about it. Praise about it. Joshua comes up against Jericho, surrounds the city. The walls fall down. They kill everyone. Oh, God, why did you pour out your wrath on Jericho? Praise God for what He has done to deliver His people. And we saw this on countless occasions in the Old Testament with Hezekiah and the army of Shennacherib that came against him and the the king of Babylon that, that came against him and God delivered them from that and wiped out something like 80,000 men. His wrath came upon that army. And the people did not lament. They rejoiced in the deliverance of God for their nation. It brought glory to God. Don't you think the people of all the known world then that the Israelites were about to inhabit, don't you think they were quaking in their boots when they heard of what God did in Egypt? and how he parted the Red Sea and brought the Israelites through. Don't you know that they were afraid of that? I know they were because it says so right in the book of Joshua. They were, their knees were knocking because they were up against the God who is God, the God who is glorified by his wrath as it was poured out in power. His wrath isn't something to be ashamed of. His wrath is something to see as who he is as God. And that brings us to the next thing. You have all of that about his wrath, all of that about his judgment, all of that clearly taught in the Bible. And now we have this. If you're still in Romans, I ask you to please turn back to Matthew, but keep a finger in Romans. Matthew chapter 26. Don't lose track of Romans. 
Here in Matthew chapter 26, we have the account of our Lord at Gethsemane. You look down to verse 38, and I can't go into too much depth as to the whole ordeal and what takes place, but I invite you to look down to verse 38 where Jesus says, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. That's what he says, as you know, to his disciples. Verse 39, And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. Do you realize that apart from this, we really never hear from Jesus what takes place on the cross. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, He doesn't tell you what He's doing on the cross. It never says what He's doing on the cross. Of course, it does in the epistles, and we learn from Paul in Romans, and we learn from Hebrews what took place. But here's Jesus telling you what takes place on the cross. The cup. He was about to drink the cup. And we saw from scriptures that that is a reference to the cup of the wrath of God. The cup of the wrath of God. And so while Jesus was on the cross, he was drinking the cup of the wrath of God for his people. Every last drop. He was taking God's wrath upon himself as he was giving his life, as he was shedding his blood, as he was hanging there on the cross. He was not just an inactive, absent part of the spectacle. He was actively taking the very wrath of God upon himself, the cup of the wrath of God. And he drank every drop for you and for me and every one of his people who genuinely believes. And here's what Paul does say about it. That's Romans 5. I say to you, as you turn there, do not look upon God as an angry God, Do not look upon God merely as a God of wrath and that He's mad at you all the time. Why was Jesus on that cross? For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. He gave His Son to die. He sent His Son to die. He sent His Son to take that wrath. Remember I said that His wrath is not Optional. Wrath for sin has to be paid. Someone has to pay it. Either you will pay it or Jesus paid it on the cross. And this is what Paul says now here in chapter 5 of Romans verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own, what? Love! 
Remember, He's a God of holiness, a God of purity, a God of justice. He is also a God of love. And so, He demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. People, that's what it's all about. Why did Jesus die? To pay God's wrath for your sin. And then... You are saved. Saved, he shall save us from, or we shall be saved from the wrath of God. That's what salvation is. Now, I don't know how to get people saved if you don't tell them what salvation is. Part and parcel of preaching the gospel is telling people that they need to be saved. And being saved is being saved from the wrath of God. And the wrath of God is because of your sin. That's what the gospel says. That's what the gospel is. And the good news, the gospel good news is that he did it. He paid your sin debt on the cross. And you're saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Praise God for the work of Christ. It is the work of Christ on the cross that saves me from the wrath of God and from hell and from the fate of that rich man who never expected to wake up in hell, but he did in agony, in flames, and he was unable to escape. But you don't have to be that way. You don't have to go there because Jesus says, believe on me and you shall be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we know that in the order of things, He must draw. He must draw men to Himself. And how He does that is where we will pick up next week. But I urge you, I plead with you today, be certain that the wrath that you deserve has been paid for by the one who did not deserve it. The only one who did not deserve God's wrath, His Son Jesus, who freely took my wrath upon Himself on the cross. That's the gospel, my dear friends. That's the gospel, children. That all of us are sinners. All of us deserve hell. But Jesus died to take my hell, to take my wrath, 
And so now I am redeemed, reconciled back with God and will spend eternity not in hell, but with Him. Do you know that for yourself today? Can you say confidently and assuredly that I know He's paid for my wrath and I thank Him for it? Unworthy that I am, sinner that I am, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. For me. Can you say that? I pray that you can. Let's pray.